0: This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising.
1: So we see the opportunity for carbon to significantly transform the value and nature of the forestry sector. There's a kind of a tipping point in the price where more conservation long-term perpetual restoration work uh, becomes uh, economically attractive. And so that's what I sort of expect will happen is we'll start to see an evolution in how landscapes are managed and invested in depending on the price of carbon.
0: I'm Rebecca Emanuel, and this is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School we explore the business implications and opportunities of climate change. In this season of Climate Rising, we focus on entrepreneurship tackling climate change. I'm the Director of Social Entrepreneurship at Harvard Innovation Labs, and I work with current and future entrepreneurs every day. Sustainable forestry can be complicated, debated, and have a counterintuitive opportunity. There's a general consensus that preserving forests is good for our climate. That can make forestry, cutting down trees, a pretty awkward business. Today, I'll be speaking with David Brand, founder and CEO of New Forests. New Forests is a business that manages forests for long-term returns for institutional investors. He has an unusual climate vision. Right now, the forestry business, together with agriculture and land use, is responsible for about one quarter of the emissions that cause climate change. That's because trees absorb carbon in their wood and leaves, and harvesting trees and disturbing soil releases carbon into the atmosphere. Brand wants to reverse that. If right now, forestry, agriculture, and land use are responsible for producing one quarter of global emissions, he wants to make the forestry industry responsible for capturing well over that percentage of emissions, all within 10 years. And he sees this as quite profitable too. We started our conversation by talking about just how much land his company manages and what they do. David, thank you for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Rebecca. Nice to talk to you.
0: Good to talk to you too. So you founded New Forests, which manages the land, cuts down trees, sometimes processes the trees into a range of products. Can you give us a sense of how large that is, how much land do you manage?
1: Well, you know, it's almost a million hectares, which is about two and a half million acres. Um, We operate across six countries, the US, Australia, New Zealand, Indonesia, Malaysia, Laos. Um, We're harvesting probably about seven million cubic meters of timber each year, uh, which is about seven million telephone poles, if you think about it that way. You know, and we operate across all different types of uh, forests, both temperate and tropical. And, uh, And we have a large part of our area is actually natural forests. We're managing that for conservation. So we have both production areas and conservation areas that we integrate together.
0: You've set yourself a challenge of reversing the forestry sector's historical role. In the past, forestry and land use were a major contributor to climate change. You not only want to stop that, but dial the needle completely the other way. You want to make forestry responsible for 30% or more of all climate mitigation, and soon by 2030. Can you tell me what would key drivers of that be?
1: Well, I think uh, there's two or three elements of this. Uh, the first is that we absolutely must stop converting natural ecosystems to production systems. What we have now in terms of Land use, we need to just use better, make it more productive, and make it operate in a way that we can keep up with uh, human population growth and, and demand. Uh, secondly, we need to be actively investing in degraded land and recovering that. And part of that will be reforestation, but also putting in things like coastal mangroves and so on that have uh, the potential to uh, help with storm surge and so on. And then Thirdly, is to manage our production systems sustainably. And uh, in the case of forestry, to try to really push for the substitution of sustainable, low embodied energy materials into the built environment and into our material supply chains, so that we end up with uh, really this circular bioeconomy linked with sustainable land use.
0: Yeah. And so you get paid for all of these three things. You're both getting paid in the carbon markets for the benefits of natural forests, like carbon capture and storage. And you've figured out how to get paid for recovering deforested land. And of course, you get paid when you intensively manage and harvest forests. Can you tell me, how how new is that?
1: So one of the key things in uh, forestry has been, uh, you know, over history, we've had these positive externalities. In other words, forests are... Uh, holding more carbon than there is in the atmosphere. Forests are the source of much of the world's fresh water. Forests provide uh, biodiversity. Half of the world's biodiversity is within forest ecosystems. All those things are unpriced. So society uses them in some ways wastefully. And what we have tried to do as a business is engage with the ability to price some of these externalities so that we can actually invest in them. And uh, so we've been very active, for example, in the forest carbon offset market in California, where we've worked with a number of Native American communities to help them um, support conservation of their lands.
0: Yeah, tell me about that.
1: Yeah, well, I suppose that uh, when you look at uh, most Native American communities, they have a conservation ethic. And uh, the challenge then is to find a way that we can actually economically reward that conservation ethic. And and it was great that the California AB 32 carbon market uh, created a, uh, a system of carbon offsets that rewarded landowners who had done the right thing and had conserved their forests.
0: So via California's carbon markets, you can get paid for reducing emissions. Uh, California caps how much carbon can be emitted by, say, a given company. And then companies that need to emit more carbon than their cap allows for their business can actually pay someone else who reduces emission. That offsets the amount that they're over the cap. This is what these Native American communities could get paid for if they can verify the carbon impact.
1: And so for many of these uh, communities, what they needed was the technical expertise of how you set up the carbon project, take it through a complex regulatory approval process, and then um, actually get the carbon offsets and sell them. And so we do all that process and we do that on the basis that we'll put our money at risk and then we'll just take a share of the proceeds at the end. And so, as you say, we've worked with uh, two or three American uh, first nations in uh, California, in Alaska, uh, the Mescalero Apache uh, in New Mexico. And, um, All of these projects I think have made a a really significant difference to these communities in terms of giving them uh, a significant economic asset that they can then use for community development. We see a kind of a, a new model of the forestry sector where it's like a natural infrastructure. We're not only providing sustainable goods to society, but we're also getting paid for some of the ecological services that we're providing. And that really creates completely new investment strategies that uh, can continue to be within the forestry asset class, but deliver different types of returns and more high sustainability outcomes.
0: It sounds like distinguishing the types of forests is key here. And natural forests, unmanaged, uncut, as you were just describing, they sequester a lot more carbon than managed ones, even sustainably managed ones. So up to two times as much. Um, And New Forest says that it doesn't convert natural forest to plantations or to non-forest. How did you come about to make that decision? Was that controversial?
1: Well, it's absolutely important that we not convert any more natural ecosystems into production systems. What we have left needs to be maintained uh, because of its carbon value, because of its biodiversity value, because of its value in watershed catchments. So that's a a fairly easy principle for us. And frankly, when we're having our forests certified for sustainability, it's a requirement that you can't have converted natural ecosystems into plantation forests, for example. And um, it's interesting economically, if you have a carbon price signal of 10 or $15 a ton of CO2e, what you tend to do is um, just make changes at the edges. So you might plant new pine plantations on degraded land and still manage them as a forestry crop. But then there comes a point where the price of carbon gets up to 20, 25, $30 a ton that you start to realize that you can make more money from permanent restoration of mixed forest types. and And so there's a kind of a tipping point in the price where more conservation, long-term perpetual restoration work uh, becomes uh, economically attractive and so that's what i sort of expect will happen is we'll start to see an evolution in how landscapes are managed and invested in depending on the price of carbon or even uh, natural climate solutions that may include biodiversity enhancement or uh, watershed payments so all these things are at a, I would say, a, quite an early stage, but we're starting to see evidence of how these market signals affect land management.
0: So you could say that, as we discussed earlier, your first strategy is finding ways to get paid for not cutting down natural forests. And you've just described a second strategy, which is to actively invest in degraded land, which depends heavily on having a compelling price for carbon.
1: Yeah, as the price signal becomes persistent, pervasive, and, uh, and strong enough, then investors will respond and capital will flow into different types of investment strategies that um, reflect those different market signals. In New Zealand, we've had projects where we've reforested some of the marginal hill country back with uh, trees and that we can then get funded through uh, carbon offsets, and similarly in Australia and uh, Asia. So I think from our point of view, um, what we want to do is embed conservation and production together, and then carry on over time holding what we have as natural forests and in, and optimizing the performance of the production forests. Um, you know, the, the the other aspect of this is that sequestration, in other words, trying to pull carbon dioxide back out of the atmosphere or remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is going to need us to expand both production forestry areas, but also restoration of degraded land. So there will also be a kind of a a mixed reforestation and restoration component to our investment strategies going forward. And we're uh, looking now at designing that as we get a carbon price that that can, that whole process can become fully commercial.
0: And what kinds of returns are you seeing there?
1: When we look at uh, pricing, the risk of timber market exposure versus, say, a carbon market exposure, uh, generally speaking, at this stage, we're taking the carbon market exposure as an upside. So what that means is it's adding incremental returns to the underlying timber returns. And in some cases, it shifts your management regime. So you have maybe a a lower harvest rate and more sequestration in the forest. And that gives you a a higher total return. So these are the kinds of um, investment strategies that we're pursuing now.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: And so that's in my mind. Well, what, what I mean by that is that if you have tropical forest landscapes and they're just sitting out there unused, unpriced, unmanaged, then slowly they get whittled away as people cut them down and plant palm oil or whatever it might be. But when you have a hundred thousand hectare area that has say 30,000 hectares of intensive production and 50, 60,000 hectares of intact natural forests, and maybe 10,000 hectares of community plantations, whatever. And those are all integrated together and the core business is supporting that whole landscape. That's the kind of outcome that can be perpetuated over decades. And it's that commercial engine in the center that allows that landscape to then become stabilized and and carried forward over the decades.
0: Now let's pivot a bit. Tell me about the materials part of your strategy and the importance of building with wood as a way to address climate change.
1: Yeah, I think uh, it's really important when we look at the whole envelope of sustainability that uh, not only are we trying to improve land use and ensure that we retain the important role of, of forests in uh, carbon sequestration and carbon storage. But we also need renewable, sustainable materials in society. And when you look at wood versus concrete and steel, it has a much lower embodied energy. Can
0: you tell me what embodied energy means?
1: So when you make a, a ton of uh, steel, you use uh, you have probably a ton of greenhouse gas emissions associated with uh, making the steel. If you make a ton of concrete, there's a sort of a, uh, a ton of greenhouse gas emissions associated with making that concrete. So wood actually is storing carbon and it has a very low amount of energy needed to make timber products. And so when you look at the whole life cycle of a building, you can have greenhouse gas negative buildings by building them out of wood and there's been a forecast now that the rise of this mass timber construction system uh, is doubling every 24 months it actually stores carbon in its use you look at things like um, paper and paper-based packages and they can be recycled versus plastic which you know more than 90 percent of that ends up in waste streams so there's a, a host of opportunities to substitute bio-based materials for more unsustainable or fossil fuel-based materials in society, and that's really part of the climate change and sustainability agenda. And you could end up by the mid-2030s with a completely climate-neutral built environment uh, in in North America, for example.
0: Are there other examples of circular economy products that are coming out of either the uh, whole wood or the the waste streams that you see as up and coming?
1: There's a big substitution back against plastic, I think, to more renewable materials. And now what's even coming out is bioplastics, which are uh, taking some of the molecular uh, materials out of wood and, and making plastics that are then biodegradable. And um, we're seeing a whole host of things like pharmaceuticals coming from wood, Um uh, New fabrics like tensel, which are made from wood fiber or bamboo and substitute for, say, polyester, which is from fossil fuels. Um, you know, there's just a, a myriad of, of new materials that are coming from um, wood fiber and, and uh, timber. And then in the built environment, we're seeing uh, this idea of mass timber construction where we create big cross-laminated panels that can then be dropped in and built quite quickly into multi-story buildings, uh, have high embodied energy uh, or have very low embodied energy relative to sink.
0: Great. So with that background about your business model, can you describe how New Forests is different from an old school forestry company? What's new about New Forests?
1: Yeah, I think the you know, if we call it old school, it was really about um, regulating the supply of timber from the land. And so you would grow the trees when they reached the age of maturity, they'd be cut down and replanted. And it was a very mechanistic uh, calculation of sustained yield and regulation of the forest. Now we're dealing with potentially multi-objective systems uh, where we're trying to look at not only timber production on a sustainable basis, but climate mitigation and carbon stock change accounting. Uh, We might be looking at the whole social infrastructure that we're operating in uh, and how we're engaged with communities. Uh, We might be looking at quite different risk profiles emerging over time. So the complexity of forest management is uh, going up by a couple of orders of magnitude and the new kind of software and forecasting systems gets ever more complex but out of that we're actually extracting more value as well and you know i think what we have been able to demonstrate is that you can create this more complex environment with more option value uh, with more ability to report on impact metrics and align with things like the uh, paris agreement goals with the uh, sustainable development goals uh and from that you know you end up with a a system that's going to be uh, more robust in other words you'll reduce risk but also you'll find new opportunities and from that generate higher returns
0: requires being smart though (laughs) it's quite a few things to balance
1: yeah well it's true but uh you know i think this is the whole nature of uh society that has the tools and information systems now that allows us to manage things that wouldn't have been dreamt of uh, 20 or 30 years ago.
0: So part of all of this is a little bit of a time game, right? We don't just need to capture carbon generally in the future. We sort of need to do it right now. The next five to 10 years is a super important window. But putting this in tree terms, researchers say that seventy to 125-year-old trees are the best at grabbing carbon from the air. But in a odd twist of fate, for a lot of species, 70 years old is also the perfect size for the sawmill. So how do you think about that? Is that also based on the, the price of carbon or how you're already thinking about the land?
1: So I guess from you know the perspective of um, looking at the optimal rotation age, if there's a price of carbon, you will grow larger, older trees inherently because that has a a larger average carbon store over the cycle of the growing, harvesting, and replanting. Um, So we see, for example, shifting from shorter rotation intensive eucalyptus plantations in Australia to longer rotation pine plantations, which store uh, more average carbon stock. And we'll also see, uh, as I said, the restoration of permanent plantings where they will just keep sequestering carbon for decades.
0: So let's start out with the basics of your business. And can you explain briefly how your funds work and who are typical investors for New Forests?
1: Sure. New Forests is an investment management business that uh, invests institutional capital into forestry assets and manages those for long-term Uh, stable returns. So our clients tend to be large institutional investors, uh, pension funds, insurance and reinsurance companies, medical benefits trusts, and so on. And they're looking at matching their investments to their long-term liabilities. So paying people's pensions that they may owe in 30 years time, and they can map that out and then develop a portfolio of investments. Uh, Forestry has been very attractive as an asset class, the return comes from a process of biological growth. These real assets tend to have reasonable steady cash yield. So when you look at all the um, fixed inc- income area like government bonds and so on, there's almost no return. So looking at forests, like a woody bond, if you will, uh, it actually uh, can provide some better yield uh, than some of the fixed income assets at the moment. So. You know, from that, we've seen this whole area of real assets, forestry, agriculture, infrastructure, real estate has steadily expanded over the last 20 years as a proportion of these institutional portfolios. And I think our clients as universal investors that are investing in all aspects of the global economy, they see these sustainability issues as systemic risk. And so if you can bring them well-argued cases for shifting the investment strategy trying to capture things like carbon value, they will come along on that. And particularly if you can demonstrate success. And I think now after 15 years, we have demonstrated success. I mean, we've gone from $50 million in assets under management to now something like $5 billion in assets under management. So dealing with climate change is about getting to scale. Uh, And our view is that institutional investment capital is the scale of capital that's going to be needed to drive these transitions so we've positioned ourselves as a manager of institutional investment capital and that's in our view the the money that we want to channel into these sustainability type investment strategies uh, that will lead to climate mitigation at the scale that's necessary conservation at the scale that's necessary sustainable materials at the scale that's necessary, and and that's our purpose.
0: So despite the fact that natural carbon solutions could be hugely beneficial, maybe up to 30% of global carbon mitigation, somehow these solutions aren't yet attracting significant dollars, even just 3% of dedicated climate investments. Can you tell me how you see that changing?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, forests are really a substantially mispriced asset. We have, um, you know, billions of hectares of uh, trees on earth, but uh, many of these areas are worth dollars per hectare. And uh, I think what we're increasingly seeing is that as climate change starts to become central to everything, assets are going to be repriced. And uh, when you look at the greenhouse gas emissions challenge, if we want to take 40 million tons of current emissions down to zero by 2050, and we want 10, 12, 15 billion tons a year of that emission reduction to come out of land use, uh, we're going to have to completely recast the nature of the asset class and bring new capital into things like restoration, conservation, sustainable management that uh, really wasn't investable in the past. And that's really what we're trying to do with our business is develop those type of investment strategies, firstly, through incremental changes to the existing asset class. But ultimately, we can see uh, the potential to create almost new large-scale natural infrastructure type funds that are blending together conservation, production, community development programs, pan-tropical investment strategies and so on that can really get to the scale that's necessary um, to start to make a dent in that uh, emissions profile.
0: And as we wrap up, can you tell me where you see this field evolving in the next five to 10 years?
1: Yeah, I really think that um, there is going to be a central recasting of the forestry asset class. And, you know, I. I was reflecting on this a couple of years ago that, um, you could probably buy the entire forest cover of this planet for about 800 billion us dollars. And that's half the value of the real estate of Manhattan. And that is such a mispriced asset when you think about it. And I think what's going to start happening is that these assets, these natural assets are going to start to be repriced and they're going to become valued for their climate services and and biodiversity conservation and what we want to be is helping design how that transition process occurs and it's step by step but it's trying to look at different ways of uh, deploying capital different ways to engage with uh, communities land use change can be controversial and part of what we want to do is find those pathways that are creating win-win outcomes for communities for investors and for the environment and uh, I think we're making great progress and uh, we're continuing to grow as a business and I'm hoping that you know we'll see the whole forestry sector expand and and potentially become 5 or 10 times more valuable over the next decade and that's what we need if we're going to Uh, really make a dent on the climate change issue.
0: David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Great to talk to you.
1: Great to talk to you, Rebecca.
0: That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time, we talk with Steve Oldham, CEO of Carbon Engineering, about pulling carbon out of the air, not via trees, but through direct air capture technologies. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rebecca Emanuel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. This episode was created with the help of associate producer Mika McFarlane, HBS class of 2020, and producer Mary Dew. Thanks as always to the amazing team from the HBS Business and Environment Initiative that created and support the podcast, Mike Toffel, Jennifer Nash, Lynn Shank, and Elise Clarkson. You can subscribe to Climate Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please leave us a review. We really appreciate the feedback. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising homepage, climaterising.hbs.edu.